Good to see you today. We are in Colossians chapter 2. And my three-year-old, John David, he just continues to be uh, a never-ending source of illustrations for you. And uh, just happens to be that, that time of life. And whenever we need to get him dressed or need him to do anything that involves us, you know, him having to stop what he's doing, he hates it. Uh, he hates taking his clothes off. He hates taking, putting his clothes on. Uh, he hates doing about anything. So we've tried all sorts of discipline methods. What seems to work the best is putting him in his room and time out and closing the door because he hates to be alone. And uh, so that seems to work, but, but you have to catch him to do that. And so he loves to run away. And so if, when he's running away, we're trying to get him dressed, and he's running away. We'll say, John David, you know, uh, come back here or come to me or, you know, you're going to get time out. Well, that's all well and good, but i got to catch him to get him to time out. And, you know, he's short and fast and slippery. And, and, and I'm tall uh, and, and slow, and I'll slip. You know, uh, so it's not really the same. Uh, uh, so I can probably chase him down. I can probably run fast enough to chase him down, but it's the stopping I'm worried about uh, when I get to him. Chasing a three-year-old at 43 is a lot different than at 30 when it was with my other children. So uh, he thinks it's a game and kind of laughs, but, you know, it kind of gets old uh, after a while. And, and as soon as we have to get him dressed, you know, he, he goes from being very clingy and, and loving to just avoiding us at all costs when it's time to get dressed. And he's, he's just constantly trying to avoid uh, being stopped or being dressed or anything like that. And you can probably relate to, to children, grandchildren you have, avoiding doing certain things, whether they avoid doing homework, whether they avoid chores, Avoiding responsibilities. Basically, when you're a child, or and even when you're a teenager, you don't really want to do anything that's not fun. Amen. And, and the older I get, I kind of feel myself going that way too. But <laughs> but if it's not fun, right? You, you don't really want to uh, to do that as a child. You, you try to avoid any type of thing that's going to slow down what you want to do. And that's just the case with our three-year-old. And as you go about following Christ, you're going to have to become good at avoiding things. Uh, you're going to you're gonna have to come good at avoiding things that the world gives us. And one of the things you'll have to learn to avoid are the landmines of what we're calling today false worldviews. A view of the world that someone has created that says this is how the world works, this is what you need to succeed, to have peace, to have contentment in the world, but it's false. This is what the Colossians were facing. This is what we face today in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And Paul tells them this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he sat aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Father in heaven, as we seek to worship you today, as you are stirring our hearts this Sunday, this Lord's Day, this sacred day that we set aside every week to be here, to give thanks to you, to worship you for who you are and what you've done and, and give you glory today, that you would show us today how we can avoid those false worldviews and what they are and, and, and how we know they're there and how we know that we need to place our trust in a biblical view of how the world works, of who you are. So we don't get tossed about in a sea, in a sea of false worldviews that want to drown us, Lord. So, Father, I pray that uh, these words that I speak today are yours, that you fill me with your spirit, Lord, that you show us what you would have us to see today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to show you the differences between, or the main difference between false worldviews and the Christian worldview. The differences between a false worldview and the Christian worldview. Number one, uh, that secular understandings of the world are hollow. Secular understandings of the world are hollow. Look at verse 8. Paul tells them to, to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. This phrase, taking you captive, is kind of a metaphor in itself, but also has the idea of being someone's prey. You have a predator and a prey. And secular philosophies are the predator and you are the potential prey. So Paul is urging the Colossians to, to not be hunted down, not be captured by the predators of the false teaching philosophies of the day that were prevalent. Now there's nothing wrong with philosophy or philosophers in and of themselves. A philosopher is, is simply one who loves wisdom. They love thinking. That's a good thing. But many philosophies are birthed, they're incubated, and they're let loose in certain circles, mainly academic circles, that reject God. And then they filter down into our culture. Any philosophy not grounded in Scripture will lead you to create a life that for long term, and many times short term, will not work for you. But a philosophy grounded in a biblical view of the world is obviously extremely beneficial. Biblical philosophy begins with God, and it ends with God. But secular philosophies begin and end with the self. It begins with you and ends with you. Francis Schaeffer, a Christian scholar years ago, said that man cannot begin with himself and arrive 
at ultimate reality. Friedrich Nietzsche, which was a, a, a philosopher as well years ago, he claimed that God is dead, but he couldn't mentally handle his own philosophy that man was all there was and thus spent the last 11 years going insane. He could not handle the philosophy that he created, essentially. Worldly philosophies are ultimately hollow. And that's what this phrase, empty deceit, says. That he says that it's, there's empty deceit. It means hollow. You know, my children are still learning how to clean up the kitchen and throw trash away. One of the things they like to do when I walk into the kitchen is leave the cabinet doors open. So I walk in, and the cabinet doors are open, and, you know, sometimes the, they're, like, right here at my head. And so I could easily hit myself. And so sometimes I walk in, and if the cabinet doors are, uh, are all open and I'm getting a little tired of it, I'll just shut them as loud as I can sometimes and just uh, say, oh, left is that? And I try, I'm not doing it in anger. I'm just shutting it forcefully, right? Uh, and, but they're also trying to figure that out. They're also trying to figure out that when, when something is empty in the cupboard, in the cabinets, you throw it away. Right? They're trying to learn that. One of the things they like to forget to do is throw these boxes of food away after they take the last item. So the other day I had dinner, and, uh, and I, realized, I remembered we had some little Debbie cakes. Like, oh, yeah, we have those little Debbie cakes there in the kitchen. And it's been months since I've had a little Debbie cake. Now I've had other things, but it's been months since I've had that. So I was like, oh, we had those Debbie cakes in there. I really want one of those. So I walked into the kitchen. Uh, I actually opened the cabinet this time, and, and there was the box of Debbie cakes, and I picked it up, and I put my hand inside the box, and nothing was in there. It was hollow. Can you imagine the sad face that I had? <laughs> right? There it is. Debbie cake. Picked it up. Empty. It had the promise that something good is in there. But when I put my hand in there, it was empty. That's how secular philosophies operate. They promise goodness for your life. They promise benef benefits for your life. But they are ultimately hollow. They're, it's empty deceit. They promise goodness, but they give grief. So he says, don't be deluded by the promise of these hollow Philosophies, And furthermore, he says that they are given according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, empty philosophies, they, they come from people. They have a human origin as opposed to a divine origin. This word for tradition here is the same word that, that Jesus would often use when he rebuked the Pharisees. A tradition is a, is a system of thought that may not necessarily be new. There can be good traditions, right? But a tradition is man-made. That's the purpose of it. You can have good man-made traditions. You can have bad man-made traditions. He's saying that, that be careful not to get wrapped up in a tradition, right? For instance, there's many parts of the world that have what we call native or indigenous Religions And these are essentially the man-made traditions and the religions are all kind of wrapped up in one. So they can't decipher between their religion and their culture. These traditions come from what Paul calls the, the elemental spirits of the world. Some translate this as the principles of the world. 
And so as cultures develop outside of Christ, they, they form up their own values of what is right, of what is wrong. For instance, in India, tradition coupled with Hinduism has brainwashed the people there into thinking that cows are of more value than some people. Certain classes of people are born and die on the streets because it is against the cultural and religious code to help them. Why? Because their tradition teaches that that person on the streets deserves that life because what they did in a previous life. The point here is that there are plenty of cultures and worldviews that develop outside of a Christian understanding. So we have to be careful as we follow Christ not to be enamored with false human traditions because they are ultimately hollow. You put your hand in that box expecting something good, and there's nothing in there at best. And at worst, there's a snake in there. Christian understanding of the world is hollow and might even be dangerous. Secondly, a Christian understanding of the world is solid. A Christian understanding of the world is solid, the opposite of hollow. Verse 9, for in him the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul reminds them that in Christ is where all wisdom is ultimately found. Every attribute of God existed and exists in Jesus Christ. He was and is 100% God and 100% man. So don't be fooled by these other ideas that are perverted with human thought and are not based on the Word of God, completely based on the Word of God. He's saying to resist advances from these. And the good news is that in Christ you can resist it. He says in verse 10, You've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. As a Christian, you have the living God. You have God living through you through the power of of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing you can't resist. Now, your flesh can fail, but if you rely on the Spirit, there's nothing you can resist. You can't resist. You, have, you can have victory over any type of doubt, any type of system that may enter your mind, so don't be deceived. You have the mind of Christ in you if you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. When you're tempted to doubt, when you're tempted to, to follow something that, that is not good for you, remember that you have all the treasures, all the wisdom of things in Christ. Paul says in verse 11 to these believers that in Jesus you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision was the sign that the Jewish people were in a covenant relationship with God. Now, Christians are also in a covenant relationship with God, but the sign is not circumcision. The sign of our covenant is that of baptism. He says in verse 12, "...having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him." From the dead. See, baptism is your 
your outward profession that Jesus Christ has saved you. See, when you're baptized, you're showing everyone that you've been made right with God. You're showing them that your, your sins have been forgiven, that you are now in perfect relationship with God. Baptism doesn't save you just as circumcision didn't save the Jews. And just as circumcision was merely a sign of God's covenant with them, baptism is a sign of God's covenant with believers in Christ. What do we mean by the word covenant? Well, covenant is a, a relationship that is started by God, initiated by God, and sealed by God. You can't break that covenant with God. He initiated a covenant with, with Noah, and the sign of that is the rainbow. He initiated a covenant with Abraham, and the sign of that was circumcision. And he initiated a covenant with David, and the sign of that was the sun and the moon and the stars. As long as they shined, he said, you'd have an heir on the throne, which was established in Jesus. And because a covenant is God's idea, a covenant will not ever be broken. So baptism is the sign that you are God's child. What is his promise? His promise is that you will never perish. Never perish. You have eternal victory over death. When you're saved and you are baptized, you are showing in that sign that you have defeated death through Jesus Christ. And just as Christ was buried and rose, so you too have died to your sin, and now you are a new person, a new creation in Christ. This happened in the powerful working of God. You didn't save yourself. God saved you. He who raised Jesus raised you. I have a picture I want to show you on the screen. Rabbi Zacharias told uh, about doing a lectureship several years ago at the Ohio State University. And as he was being driven to the lecture, they passed what was then the, the new Wexner Art Center. And the driver said that this is a new art building for the university. It is a fascinating building designed in the postmodernist view of reality. And so he described this fascinating building. He said, the building has no pattern Staircases go nowhere. Pillars support nothing. The architect designed the building to reflect the postmodernist view of life, that life is, went nowhere and life was mindless and senseless. And so Zacharias turned and said, I turned to the man describing and said, did they do the same thing with the foundation? And the man laughed and said, well, you can't do that with the foundation. A proper understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for you is the foundation. It is solid. It is everlasting. And so a Christian understanding of the world is solid, no matter what it looks like on the outside. Third, a Christian understanding of the world is victorious. Victorious. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses... In the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. See, previously, 
You were spiritually dead in your trespasses or sins. And your sin is what killed you, spiritually speaking. But now in Christ, you have been spiritually raised from the dead. How? By forgiving you of all your sins. The Bible uses the word trespasses. When someone trespasses on your land, they are there against your will. When you trespass against God, you've acted, you've sinned against his will. So sin can be intentional or it can be unintentional. But even though you are spiritually dead in Christ, you have been raised in glorious victory over sin. How? Verse 14 tells us, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, he says, to the cross. Our sin makes up our list of debts, but in Christ, this debt list is canceled. The legal demands were complete separation from God and punishment, but Jesus paid that debt for us. He paid it, he says, when he was nailed to the cross. We have no spiritual debt anymore. Jesus has paid it in full. Look at Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Amen? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, there is victory in Christ because even though we are sinners, he looks at us as not being sinners through Jesus Christ. It is a solid foundation and it is a victorious foundation. Nothing else we need in life. Psalm 86, 5 says this, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. We have a solid and a victorious foundation. So don't be deluded by the hollowness of the worldviews that the world offers. Don't be deluded by that. He says in verse 15 that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, any person who, who may try to harm you in some way is ultimately failing. Nothing they can do will keep you away from the love of God will keep you away from eternal life with him. And this idea of triumph has this idea of a ticker tape parade. It's this idea of a, of a, of a team victory. Team victory. You know, every, every team victory, every championship has an MVP. I remember watching the, the, the Gamecock women's basketball team win the national championship this past spring. They had a team parade. But you know, they had the most valuable player of the Final Four. And that player was out front holding that trophy. Everybody helped win, but she was the MVP. And in many ways, we are on Jesus' team, but we are not the MVP. He is. And even though we were sitting on the bench when he was on the cross, doing nothing but watching, we share in his victory. Amen. We share in his victory. There is ultimate victory in Christ. And I know one day when I'm chasing my little three-year-old around, he's going to stop and let me get him. And that is a victorious day. 
That'll be a victorious day, and that'll be the day I tell myself that he has found Jesus. <laughs> that he has found the solid rock of obedience. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us today. As we close our, our time together, we thank you that, that you've given us the word, that you've given us all this encouragement. Sometimes it's hard to know, Father, what not to listen to. Certain things even seem good, moral, even seem Christian. Like this philosophy that the Colossians faced, Lord, but it wasn't. So, Lord, give us that, give us that, what we need to be able to make understand the difference between these things. Give us that discernment, Father. Or if there's one in here today that's never placed their faith in you, they would do so today. And, and for those of us that love you, Lord, that we would continue following you and that we would avoid those pitfalls, avoid those worldviews that would suck us in and earn our trust. That we know that they're ultimately hollow. And Lord, that we can keep our faith focused on you. Father, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.